The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Good morning, chapel family. How are you today? Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. That didn't sound very good. You guys didn't have as much coffee as me. Today is going to be a good day, and here's why I know this. One of the chapel family people brought me foundation coffee, and they just came up and gave it to me, and that was amazing. And then after that, someone said, we want to talk to you about Hawaii, which I don't think they're bringing me, but in my heart, I was like, I will talk about Hawaii until the sun goes down and comes back up a thousand times. We're going to be in the book of Daniel today, so if you want to flip there, we're actually going to be jumping around quite a bit, but if you want to have a point of reference, I'll just be chiming in verses. Primarily, we're going to be in the story of Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3. Now, one of the interesting things about raising young boys in Florida is that they get this certain bravado. And many of us, I know we're transplanted here from all over the country. Um, where, where I grew up, you wear slippers all the time, or flip-flops, you guys call them, or thongs or whatever. Um, thongs mean something different in California. So, um, but, but raising boys in Florida, my boys now and I, we've been doing this thing where we go on an adventure. And they love watching YouTube, so I said, okay, kids, I will make one adventure, kid adventure video every week. So obviously the first adventure is we are going to go around the lake in our backyard. And by lake, I mean retention pond. And by retention pond, I mean gutter runoff, okay? So we are going around our little retention pond. And uh, I don't want to spoiler alert you guys in case you go find the video later, but we found this disgustingly decaying turtle. But one of the things that struck me as weird was how different my boys are from me. Because they will go out in fire ant infested lawns in the middle of what we call Florida winter, in shorts, no shirt, no shoes, nothing, just them running in the wild. Now, if you grew up in Florida, you're thinking, that sounds about right. But if you grew up anywhere else, you're thinking, they're taking their life in their own hands. And at one point, Silas was leaning over where one of these runoffs go into the pond, and it's deep, and I couldn't see the bottom. And I said, buddy, you need to get away from there. Alligators are real. And without missing a beat, he said, I will punch it in the eye. (laughs) This is my five-year-old. My five-year-old is the lightest of all of my kids. Like my three-year-old outweighs him by a couple solid pounds now. Savannah is my little, I call her, we call her the meat wagon, um, just because she's so bulky, she's built like a linebacker. And, And I said, Silas, you are a gator snack. And he said, no, no, I'm safe. I will punch it. And if I don't punch it, you will punch it. And I said, I don't know, because he was being particularly ornery that day. But, but there was this boldness in the face of danger. There was this faith that even if he couldn't deal with it, that his dad would deal with it. And just to be clear, like I do have these weird fantasies about wrestling with animals on behalf of my children um, gators are weird for me, admittedly. I grew up in the ocean. I'm okay with any sharks, except for tiger sharks. I don't like those. Any other sharks I'll swim with just fine. But gators, I mean, I've seen some of the gators that are on the golf courses here, and we're using the term alligator pretty generously. I think it's just a miniature dinosaur is what we're seeing crawling out. But Silas's boldness is what impressed me. And then his faith that I would save him, and this is obviously a five-year-old's faith. He doesn't know any better. He doesn't know that a a 1,000-pound alligator would death roll his daddy because I am not Steve Irwin. He doesn't know that. He just has faith that no matter what happens, my dad is going to get that alligator. And I have had gator jerky from Rick's, so that's a twofer for me, and I would have given it a go. But 
but Daniel is this book where we come in the Old Testament, as we've worked through the Old Testament, you have the creation, you have Moses and the slavery, the exodus, they come out of there. And then you've got Joshua and they're wandering around for 40 years. And then the kingdom, Saul, David, Solomon, and then the kingdom divides. And the north and the south of Israel fight. And then they get exiled. And the Babylonian exile is where this book takes place. We all know Daniel is famous for what? Daniel and the lion's den. If you did not grow up in church, don't feel bad. Um, I didn't know that story when I first became a follower of Jesus. But this is the story that we flannel graph. And I have no idea, you guys, why we think it's cute to tell our kids all of these crazy stories. I have no idea. From the moment that I became a follower of Jesus, I took up a real big issue with nurseries being decorated with Noah because that was like everyone gets murdered. Whether you believe it's literal or not, the moral of the story is God floods the world. And we're like, let's put this up in a nursery. I mean, maybe if you want your kid to be terrified, that's a good move. So if you're a parent that operates with the fear thing, man, put Noah up, put Daniel up with lions. I don't know why that doesn't create nightmares. I mean, I'm allergic to cats, let alone having lions surrounding my room in the flannel graphs. And in the, and in the cartoons, Daniel's always like sad when he goes in. He goes down and he just, and the lions just look at him. And they lay down. And if you've seen the cartoons, the, the lions are laying down. And it's almost like Daniel's just petting them. Now, I don't know what happened, but I've seen lions. I've seen lions come up to a zoo cage and take a swipe at the glass. And you see grown people jump back because lions are powerful, because lions are scary. And Daniel, this man of courage, faced the lions. But we're actually not going to talk about that story today. We're going to talk about Daniel's three friends who are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you're from Southern California, a bad amigo. <laughs> These are the guys whose faith in the face of a tyrant stood tall. Let's pray, and then we're going to start trucking through the book of Daniel. Father in heaven, I, I ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to have a radical faith like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. I Lord, I'm asking for these people here that in the midst of fiery trials, in the midst of things that would try to direct our hearts to worship something besides you, that you would call us back and that you would remind us who we stand with and more importantly, who stands with us. God, this story is, is one of my favorites. I, I, love, I love the picture, I love the image, and I love seeing your power put on display. May we fall more in love with you today. May we trust you more as we leave this building today than we did when we walked through the doors. Grant us faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the scene. Daniel and his friends are taken from their land. They're taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, who I'm just going to call Nebi for the rest of the sermon because it gets really repetitive. Nebi takes these young boys from Israel and says, I'm going to train you to be my wise men. And they were wise. The Bible says that they were exceedingly wise beyond that of their peers. And then Nebuchadnezzar, he's this madman, this megalomaniac, this person who's so self-absorbed, he forces everyone around them to be absorbed with himself, says to his wise men one day, I had a dream. And I want you to tell me the dream before you tell me the interpretation. Because we can all fake it till we make it. If a king came to you and said, I had a dream, interpret the dream, or I'll kill you, you would probably make something up. If he said the dream was such and such, such and such, then you'd say, well, um, out of the best interest of my life, I'm going to interpret this how I feel it should be interpreted. But Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. One of you has to tell me, 
or I'm going to kill all of you wise men. And, and I love this line because the wise men, the Chaldeans, they said, no one can show the king his dream except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. It's like the Old Testament has these little pointers and hints. It's like God was writing in sarcastic jokes because this verse says, only the gods know this, but the gods don't dwell with the flesh yet. They don't say yet, but we know the story goes on. And God did come to dwell in the flesh. So then Daniel comes and he tells the king, here's what your dream was. Your dream was of this statue. The top was gold. This represented your kingdom that God has given you. Now, now keep this in mind. This is Daniel who was taken from his land, telling Nebuchadnezzar who took him, God put you in your place. God lifted you up. God was the one who appointed you, empowered you, and gave you all of this authority to do these things. And then the next part, the chest, was made of weaker material, and the feet and the legs were weaker material, and the bottom was just clay and a little bits of iron mixed together. And each of those subsequent parts of this dream represented the next kingdom coming. Now, if you're a king, you're thinking, yes, I am the gold head. I am the top. I am the pure metal. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. And instead of saying, wow, this God is over all of this. This God has put me here where I am. This God is the one who has that very famous verse about God setting up kings and tearing down kings. God does it all, whether it's the leader of the United States or the leader of Syria or the leader of Iraq or the leader of South Africa, wherever it is, every leader around the world is put where they are by the God of the universe. And instead of this humbling Nebuchadnezzar, all he walks away from ringing in his ears are, I am golden because of what happens next. Verse 3 chapter 1, and we're going to be kind of jumping through this relatively quickly, so I'll tell you what verses we're jumping through. You can listen or you can try to follow along. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. So imagine a mid-rise building, and its breadth was six cubits. He set up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So there's a plain, and there is nothing else around except for a gold statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Solid gold, or at least gold-plated, shimmering, nothing to compete with its greatness, literally in a valley. And there stands one thing to look at, one object to adore. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and prefects and the governors and the counselors and treasurers and the justices. Basically, he got all of the important people and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He wanted all of the elite there. He wanted all of the news. He wanted all of the governors, all of the mayors to come and see this great thing for him. Now we're going to jump to verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So any instrument, when they blow it, when they play it, when they strum it, everyone was commanded to fall down and worship in the middle of this plain, this one golden image. And here's the terrifying part. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So we have the command to do something, and then, if you don't do it, burning furnace. 
Now, if you grew up in church, this should be ringing some bells. I've heard about another guy who says, worship him or burning. The answer is, I know we talk about grace a lot, but we, we don't want to ignore Bible doctrines. This is what God says, that, that there is separation from God because of what we've done to him. Now, where it gets off kilter here is that this is Nebuchadnezzar. This is a human being who is not the creator of anyone, not the owner of anyone, not the sustainer of all life, not the person who sends a redeemer. This is a king who is mad with pride and power and says, if you don't worship me, I will burn you. And then, jumping down to verse 8, therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. This is how you butter people up, right? It's how kids do it when they want something from their dad. Oh, daddy, dearest, who I love. Oh, daddy, you are so great. It's always followed with how much money do you want. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. You can just hear the the sort of snarkiness, and like, we're going to catch these Jewish people. Then there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abadamigo. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. I just want to see if you're paying attention. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. So here's the trap. Now, the, the hard part is that at this point in the Bible, if you don't recognize this pattern, like the Jews are are loved by God. They're chosen to be a nation of priests, which they did not quite do in, in most times of their history. So then they, they disobeyed God and they ended up going into slavery. And then God rescued them, said, I'm a gracious God. I love you. Do this. Live this way. They did for a short season. They didn't. So over and over, the Jews go in and out. They, they're on their own. They get taken over. They're on their own. They get taken over. They, they obey for a, a little bit and then they disobey for a long bit. And this cycle goes on and on and on. And here we finally see in Daniel Four guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're saying, I'm, I'm not bowing down. This is, this is not who I am. And now the people are plotting against them. The, the Jewish uh, culture and, and the Jewish people, they've been persecuted. If you think about this, just a fun fact, more than any other people group throughout history. From the beginning of Judaism until today, no other people group, no other religious set of beliefs has been as persecuted as Judaism for as long and as often. It's quite a remarkable thing that the Jewish people still are existing as a unique ethnic group today. I just find that fun because I'm a nerd. But anyways, we're moving on. So they, they tell them, they tell on the Jewish guys, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought them before the king. And if you grew up in church, you know the story. He said, bow down. They said, no. And they were thrown into the furnace. And not just any furnace. I mean, this thing gets hot. In verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys know that expression? And I, I, don't, I, I haven't seen it in a long time because I'm older now. But I can still picture in my mind that face when someone gets violently mad at you. You know what I'm talking about? Like when someone's whole demeanor changes. And, and for me, I'm thinking growing up as a child, when, it, when the face twists and changes. Or, or if you're married, you know like the, the face that your spouse can make 
when you've done something tragically wrong? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where they don't even have to say a word. You just know, I'm going to go take a nap somewhere else. Or if, if you're a student, a child, you know, like when your mom or your dad give you that face, you're thinking, I think this is the time where I back up slowly like Homer Simpson into the bush and just melt away. It says he was so angry, his face changed, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered mighty men of his army to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics, their hats and their outer garments. They were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flames killed the men who threw them in. So you've got mighty men binding up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All they have to do is bow down. All they have to do is bow down. I wonder how many of us would bow down and keep our fingers crossed. God, this isn't for real, but I don't really want to get thrown into a fire. They stood tall, and they said, Our God, our God, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. I love the chutzpah of these guys. I mean, these are, this is the stuff stories are made of. These are men that will not bow to anything that is untrue. No matter how the culture howls at them, they will not bend before its whims. So then the mighty men come out. They bind them up. They take them and throw them in this seven times hotter than normal fire so that the people throwing them in die. I don't know what that heat is even like. As a youth pastor, I've seen some pretty crazy things. When I was a youth pastor, I, I had a, one kid, because we had a church that had a big second-story balcony, and his friend was filming him. He wanted to jump off of the balcony, not realizing that the carpet below was literally like a centimeter thick and then concrete. I've seen kids try to jump over bonfires and not make it. I was a, obviously a bad youth pastor now that I'm saying all these stories out loud. Edwin, don't do any of these things. <laughs> My, my friend uh, Kyle, we used to call him Soups because he tripped so much. And he was the one that jumped over the bonfire. Not only is it foolish because there's fire, but because there's nails in half of the wood you put in bonfires anyway. And I'll never forget, Kyle's okay now, just in case you're wondering. He, I led him to Jesus when he was 15. He fell in the fire when he was 16. And now he's, uh, I got to do his wedding and he's got two kids. It's great. So he's okay. And now with that, let's Tarantino back. Because when he fell in that fire... I mean, you've never heard a howl of pain like he let out that day. And I didn't know if it was nails or what, but he was, uh, I can't do it because my Michael Blair eardrum's out. I mean, he, he howled. He said, ah, ah, and then I'd get him out of the fire. Don't tell your mother. This was a, this was a bonfire. And, and I've seen, this is one of the things I love about living in the South. Because when I picture fire in my head, I think of a circular pit, nice, neat little fire. One of our chapel family members, uh, he's right there. I'm going to call him out. Roberto posted this picture on Facebook. Something like bonfire in our backyard. It literally looked like they lit a house on fire. <laughs> I mean, that fire was at least two stories high, right? I mean, it was a monster. I don't know. I don't, if you ever invite me over to most marshmallows, I'm going to like, 
RSVP politely, no thanks. Because I don't know how you even do that. Now, this fire was of, of that magnitude where it's so much bigger than you would think that it kills the people just throwing the guys in. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, knowing that God was their God, would not waver. What is an area in your life where you already know you are wavering? Where is an area that the culture is howling at you and you just say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I kind of don't believe in this part or that part. Where do we piecemeal it out? Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say this is the easiest book to understand. There are nuances and ways to interpret this that we need to make sure we are diligent in here. But first off, we need to be diligent in the book. Because if we're not in this book, then we're listening to a hundred other sermons every week that are going to begin to inform our worldview. And I'm not one of those people that's like, hey, you know what, Christians, don't watch rated R movies. I don't want you to do that. Because that's what was done to me. And the irony of it all, and I joke about this often, is that Christians often say, don't watch rated R movies. But you know who the number one fan base was for one of the number one rated R movies of the early 2000s? Christians. You're thinking hypocrites. You guys all went and saw The Passion of the Christ. That's bloodier than Saving Private Ryan, We Were Soldiers, and Hacksaw Ridge combined. <laughs> combined. Well, yes, but it doesn't have other stuff. No, it doesn't. You mean like the prostitute Mary? Oh, okay. So they were, because they're all in Jewish garb, never mind, I'm not going to get, I'm just my venting, okay. This, this is real, though, for us. We have to understand that culture will howl at us. And our job is not to retreat and, and go into our safe Christian bubble, where all we do is watch Fireproof and drink lemonade and have afternoon tea with our friends. We should not do that alone. I'm all good for... Most of that bubble, I want to hang out with some of you. Uh, lemonade, no thank you. Give me an adult beverage, I'm an adult. I want hot chocolate for crying out loud. <laughs> but we shouldn't just let the culture dictate what we believe and say, well, you know, it's okay. I believe this and this about the Bible. I just want to be a generally good person. If, if your goal in coming here is to be a generally good person, I need to let you know right now that this is not the church for you. If you want to be a person who is loved radically by the Savior of the universe and have that love compel you then to live right and love others, then this might be the church for you. But if you're coming here so that you can tell your friends, well, I do go to church, so you should trust me in business. If you're coming here and you have a business and you just want to be able to have some backing for putting a fish in your business logo, which, by the way, is super weird. So in case you don't know this, as a pastor, if I see a Christian fish on a logo, I distrust the person more. Isn't that odd? So it's like, oh, here we go, plumber, Jesus fish. I don't trust that guy to mess with my water. I want to go find, like, Larry the cable guy to do it. Just some big, burly, saggy pants guy. I want my plumber to, to cuss because those guys really know how to deal with the stuff that's in the toilet. I don't need, I don't need some guy that's going to talk about it all nice. Will you waver or will you engage? Will you retreat? Will you run forward? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew the call that was coming, but they still went to the plains. They could have tried to get out of it and been somewhere else that day, but they didn't, they didn't retreat. They went in, but they didn't bend or bow. They stood, believing that God would rescue them. And the most amazing thing happened. The king threw them in. And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door, verse 26. 
of the fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out because he had looked in and seen that they were not burning. Because three men were tossed in, and the story right before that in verse 20, 22 to 25 says, Nebuchadnezzar looked in, and there was a fourth man, the mystery man. I mean, if that doesn't freak you out, you've been in church way too long. If you don't read stories like Jesus walking on water or men appearing in the midst of a fire, if you don't read those and sit back and say, whoa, and you've been in church and you've turned off your wonder and awe switch, if you've put this story in a collection where crazy things can happen and they don't make you stand in amazement any longer, because three men were thrown in, the mighty men fell to the ground dead, and Nebuchadnezzar squints into the fire and says, they're unbound. There's a fourth man. Who, did we throw four in? No, we only threw three in. Did one of the mighty men fall in? No, there was only three men who went in the furnace. I see four. And he knew right then. Come out. Now, for those of you Bible nerds with me, anytime you see uh, God take a physical form in the Old Testament, we call this a theophany, a, an appearance of God before the incarnation, before an incarnation is a big church word. It really means in the meat, before God was in the meat, in the flesh, before Jesus came. Anytime you see God take a bodily form, it's Jesus before he arrived in his little baby form. And I wish I could just eavesdrop in to some of these conversations. A recent Facebook poll was going around. It says, which Soup, which pill would you take? Would you take a pill that gives you invisibility, flying, time travel, and something other that was useless? I was like, time travel, every time. Because I'd, I'd go back and I'd, I'd watch Jesus. I'd go over here. I'd see Daniel in the lion's den. I'd see Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. I'd be like, whoa, this is crazy. I'd try to eavesdrop in. I wouldn't change history because I like the way this is panning out so far because Jesus is going to crush that thing. But man, what, did, what happened in the fire? We know that Jesus is the very presence of God. We know that they were bound when they went in and unbound when they came out. Don't let that escape you. Some of you have come in here bound. You need to be unbound. We know that they were in the fire that was burning, but they were unharmed. The Bible goes on to say they didn't even smell like fire. And for those of you who spend time around campfires, you know that is a miracle of God. doesn't matter how many times you wash that beach hoodie. That thing smells like half of a s'more in that campfire for 13 cycles. They came out unsinged, unscented, and unbound. I mean, if the metaphors aren't just jumping off the page right now. It's what Jesus does to them. He does to us on the eternal scale. For them, it was this puny little fire, I mean, by comparison, and he rescued them from the fire. They went inbound. They came out unbound. And all they did was say, we will not bow. We will not worship anything but God. Now, worship is one of those weird words that we use a lot. It's one of those stained glass church words. When I say worship, what do you guys tend to think of? Music, right? Like we do worship music, and then we hear a sermon, and then we do offering, and then you leave. 
But worship isn't just the music. Worship is everything in our life, our breaths that we take, the way we sit at the table and eat with others, the way that we give generously to those who are in need. It is singing. This is worship through music. And then right now, this is worship through hearing the good news of Jesus through Scripture. And then when we give, it's worship through giving sacrificially. And then when we go out from here, it's worship through how we love our neighbors. It's an act of worship to invite someone over to dinner to love them well. It's an act of worship, if you're married, to have sex with your spouse. That's an act of worship. I tell my wife all the time, my favorite worship song is sex. Now, if you are here and you're a child, talk to your parents. Because God made it, and it's good, and the church has done a disservice to paint it as bad. And I I almost got fired from a job. I think I had shared this once before. I was a Bible teacher at a private Baptist school. And all of these kids in the middle school, they thought that sex was super, super bad. So I said, we're going to do a little chant. And we were going through the book of Proverbs, which talks a lot about sexuality and what it looks like and the context of, of uniting before God in marriage. So I did this chant, and I said, I say sex, you say good. Sex, good, sex, good. Now, it was cute in the classroom with like 25 of them. They were like all about it. What I hadn't counted on was the class clown doing it at lunchtime with 150 students. Because on the little foyer, all I hear is his voice echo out. And it still haunts me because I knew I was in trouble before it even finished. When I say sex, you say good. And from the whole lunch area, sex, good. Mr. Tarana, please report to the principal's office. I was like, I'm a teacher and I still get called in for this. And went in, I'm so sorry that the Bible disagrees with your view of sexuality. I didn't say that, kind of. What, what is your worship? What are you aiming your heart toward? Because all of these things can either point toward yourself, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He wanted all things to point to him, but as followers of Jesus, the goal is to get all things to point to him. And, and measure your life. If moment after moment of your life are meant to give you fame, to give you attention, to give you glory, then you might be pulling a Nebuchadnezzar. If loving other people is just to get something in return from them, then you might be pulling a Nebuchadnezzar because that's loving them just to get something. Love them just to love them because then God gets something. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. If, you are, if you're in your relationship and it's always a, a give and take, and I know that this is common talk in marriage counseling and therapy, it's marriages are give and take, relationships are give and take, whether it's you and your boss, you and a friend, you and your child, give and take, give and take. As followers of Jesus, we are the one people who have received all that we need from God in the person of Jesus Christ so that we are free to give with expectation of nothing in return. Because we have someone who is watching our back. We have someone who gives us the love that we are craving, the attention we are, we are desperate for eternally, the approval that is unmatched by any other approval. Even if your boss, your spouse, and your kids all love you to the ends of the world, it doesn't even measure up to the fraction of love that God has for you. And this is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew. This is what gave them the faith to stand tall. And they said, but even if God does not deliver us, we will not worship you. This word worship, it's it's so loaded with church stuff, church dialogue, church definitions. So I want to break it down all the way to a low denominator so that we can walk away and just chew on one piece. The piece I want you to chew on is this is what you're doing at any given moment 
stirring up your affections and your love for Jesus? Or is it not? This is very simple. If you're hanging out with somebody, does that person stir up your affections for Jesus or does it rob you of affection for Jesus? This is also an excuse for those of you who are like me and very foodie-oriented to eat amazing food because McDonald's french fries do not stir up my affections for Jesus. But when I go get some french fries that were fried in duck fat and some truffle oil with a little Parmesan on top and a good beer, that stirs up my affections for Jesus. I'm serious. You think, well, that's, can, can Christians do that? Can Christians drink beer and love Jesus? Yes, as long as it's not light beer. <laughs> you are okay. Or if you have a substance problem, then you shouldn't do that either, in all honesty. As you know, like my tendency is to sin, and not, I can't moderate that. Don't do that. But if you can, then do. Don't settle for Let's settle for sushi that's purchased at a gas station when you could eat sushi on a boat in Hawaii with your friend right as you pull it out of the water and you cut it and you already have a rice cooker that you kept with rice with wasabi and soy sauce and you're literally filleting it, just flopping it on some hot rice with wasabi and soy sauce and just, oh. all the sushi lovers in here were like, Ooh. all the sushi haters in here were like, Bleh. <laughs> Because that causes worship. And then don't let it terminate on, that was so good. Let it terminate on, God, you're so good to me. You're so good to us that you would give us these things. God, you, you love us so much that you would leave us copies of your book lying around. God, you love us so much that we would have uh, Bible audio to listen to. God, you love us so much that you would give me this spouse. God, you love me so much that you would give me this job. Every time you get paid, it should be a rejoicing. Every time you get a check from somebody, let your mind go to, man, sin paid a paycheck of death, but God gives me a paycheck of life because of Jesus. Every time the breeze hits your face, thank God and worship God that the Holy Spirit is always with you. Every time the sun rises in the morning, thank God for the new mercies that come. Every time you sit down and you have to eat with somebody, even if it is terrible food, thank God that he provided you the food to eat. Every time you hang out with a friend, Thank God for all that they pour into you and then give back to them. Every time you lend a helping hand to someone who is hurting, thank God that he lent down the biggest helping hand of all when Jesus came to die in your place and mine. Every time, let this world be a parable that leads you to become faith-filled people in Jesus Christ, the mystery man in this story. They hadn't even known the details of Jesus' life, yet they believed faithfully that God would rescue them. Every time you find yourself in a dark place, remember that dawn comes in the morning and Jesus is the light that casts out all darkness. Every time that you're afraid, remember that Jesus is perfect love and he will come alongside you and within you to cast out all fear. Every time anxiety is crippling you, remember that God is holding every sparrow on every branch around the world in its place. Every time you're thinking about something other than him, remember that around us at any given moment, are tens of thousands of parables that are trying to whisper and scream into our ears that God is saying, I'm here, I'm in control, I love you, and I'm with you. Let us pray. God, Father, we can cling to you because you have clung to us 
We can come to you because you came here to us. I pray always that you would be close to me, that you would be close to this chapel family. Lord, for those who feel like their lives are being thrown into fire, I thank you that you will enter in with them and unbind them and set them loose. For those here, God, who are still questioning and searching, I pray that you would give them answers, that you would give them the boldness to come and ask the questions. I thank you beyond all of these things that you would lay out a story like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for us to learn from. That their faith stood tall in the midst of a king and a culture howling against them. Help us to stand tall, yet rooted in love, not in anger. Help us to stand tall for your glory and not for ours. And help us, Lord, to see and hear the whisper of your goodness and your love on every breeze and every meal and every hug and every friendship and every moment. In Jesus' name, amen.